0: Chapter 39 of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 39. Over the coffee in his little room, Martin read next morning's paper. It was a novel experience to find himself headlined on the first page at that, and he was surprised to learn that he was the most notorious leader of the Oakland socialists. He ran over the violent speech the cub reporter had constructed for him, and, though at first he was angered by the fabrication, in the end he tossed the paper aside with a laugh. Either the man was drunk or criminally malicious, he said that afternoon, from his perch on the bed, when Brissenden had arrived and dropped limply into the one chair. "'But what do you care?' Brissenden asked. "'Surely you can't desire the approval "'of the bourgeois swine that read the newspapers.' "'Martin thought for a while, then said, "'No, I really don't care for their approval, not a whit." "'On the other hand, it's very likely "'to make my relations with Ruth's family a trifle awkward. "'Her father always contended I was a socialist, "'and this miserable stuff will clinch his belief. "'Not that I care for his opinion, but what's the odds? "'I want to read you what I've been doing today.' It's overdue, of course, and I'm just about halfway through. He was reading aloud when Maria thrust open the door and ushered a young man in a natty suit who glanced briskly about him, noting the oil-burner and the kitchen in the corner before his gaze wandered on to Martin. "'Sit down,' Brissenden said. Martin made room for the young man on the bed and waited for him to broach his business. "'I heard you speak last night, Mr. Eden.' "'and I've come to interview you,' he began. Brissenden burst out in a hearty laugh. "'A brother socialist?' the reporter asked, "'with a quick glance at Brissenden "'that appraised the color value "'of that cadaverous and dying man. "'And he wrote that report,' Martin said softly. "'Why, he is only a boy.' "'Why don't you poke him?' Brissenden asked. "'I'd give a thousand dollars "'to have my lungs back for five minutes.' The cub reporter was a trifle perplexed by this talking over him and around him and at him. But he had been commended for his brilliant description of the socialist meeting, and had further been detailed to get a personal interview with Martin Eden, the leader of the organized menace to society. "'You do not object to having your picture taken, Mr. Eden,' he said. "'I have a staff photographer outside, you see, and he says it will be better to take you right away before the sun gets lower.' "'then we can have the interview afterward.' "'A photographer,' Brissenden said meditatively. "'Poke him, Martin, poke him.' "'I guess I'm getting old,' was the answer. "'I know I ought, but I really haven't a heart. "'It doesn't seem to matter.' "'For his mother's sake,' Brissenden urged. "'It's worth considering,' Martin replied. "'But it doesn't seem worthwhile enough to rouse sufficient energy in me.' You see, it does take a lot of energy to give a fellow a poking. Besides, what does it matter? That's right, that's the way to take it, the cub announced airily, though he had already begun to glance anxiously at the door. But it wasn't true, not a word of what he wrote, Martin went on, confining his attention to Brissenden. It was just, in a general way, a description, you understand, the cub ventured. "'And besides, it's good advertising. "'That's what counts. "'It was a favor to you.' "'It's good advertising, Martin, old boy,' Brissenden repeated solemnly. "'And it was a favor to me. "'Think of that,' was Martin's contribution. "'Let me see. "'Where were you born, Mr. Eden?' "'The cub asked, assuming an air of expectant attention. "'He doesn't take notes,' said Brissenden. "'He remembers it all.' THAT IS SUFFICIENT FOR ME. THE CUB WAS TRYING NOT TO LOOK WORRIED. NO DECENT REPORTER NEEDS TO BOTHER WITH NOTES. THAT WAS SUFFICIENT FOR LAST NIGHT. BUT Brissenden WAS NOT A DISCIPLE OF QUIETISM, AND HE CHANGED HIS ATTITUDE. MARTIN, IF YOU DON'T POKE HIM, I'LL DO IT MYSELF, IF I FALL DEAD ON THE FLOOR THE NEXT MOMENT. HOW WILL A SPANKING DO? MARTIN ASKED. Brissenden CONSIDERED JUDICIALLY AND NODDED HIS HEAD. The next instant, Martin was seated on the edge of the bed, with the cub face downward across his knees. "'Now, don't bite,' Martin warned, "'or else I'll have to punch your face. It would be a pity, for it is such a pretty face.' His uplifted hand descended, and thereafter rose and fell in a swift and steady rhythm. The cub struggled and cursed and squirmed, but did not offer to bite. Brissenden looked on gravely though once he grew excited and gripped the whiskey bottle pleading, Let me swat him once. "'Sorry my hand played out,' Martin said, when at last he desisted. "'It is quite numb.' He uprighted the cub and perched him on the bed. "'I'll have you arrested for this,' he snarled, tears of boyish indignation running down his flushed cheeks. "'I'll make you sweat for this. You'll see.' "'The pretty thing,' Martin remarked. He doesn't realize that he has entered upon the downward path. It is not honest, it is not square, it is not manly, to tell lies about one's fellow creatures the way he has done, and he doesn't know it. He has come to us to be told. Brissenden filled in a pause. Yes, to me, whom he has maligned and injured. My grocery will undoubtedly refuse me credit now. "'The worst of it is that the poor boy will keep on this way "'until he deteriorates into a first-class newspaper man "'and also a first-class scoundrel. "'But there is time yet,' quoth Brissenden. "'Who knows, but you may prove the humble instrument to save him. "'Why didn't you let me swat him just once? "'I'd like to have a hand in it.' "'I'll have you arrested, the pair of you, you big brutes!' "'sobbed the erring soul.' No, his mouth is too pretty and too weak. Martin shook his head lugubriously. I'm afraid I've numbed my hand in vain. The young man cannot reform. He will become eventually a very great and successful newspaper man. He has no conscience. That alone will make him great. With that, the cub passed out the door, in trepidation to the last for fear that Brissenden would hit him in the back with the bottle he still clutched. In the next morning's paper, Martin learned a great deal more about himself that was new to him. "'We are the sworn enemies of society,' he found himself quoted as saying, in a column interview, "'No, we are not anarchists, but socialists.' When the reporter pointed out to him that there seemed little difference between the two schools, Martin had shrugged his shoulders in silent affirmation. His face was described as bilaterally asymmetrical." and various other signs of degeneration were described. Especially notable were his thug-like hands, and the fiery gleams in his bloodshot eyes. He learned also that he spoke nightly to the workmen in the city hall park, and that among the anarchists and agitators, that there inflamed the minds of the people, he drew the largest audiences, and made the most revolutionary speeches, The cub painted a highlight picture of his poor little room, its oil stove and the one chair, and of the death's head tramp who kept him company, and who looked as if he had just emerged from twenty years of solitary confinement in some fortress dungeon. The cub had been industrious. He had scurried around and nosed out Martin's family history, and procured a photograph of Higginbotham's cash store, with Bernard Higginbotham himself standing out in front. That gentleman was depicted as an intelligent, dignified businessman, who had no patience with his brother-in-law's socialistic views, and no patience with his brother-in-law either, whom he was quoted as characterizing as a lazy good-for-nothing, who wouldn't take a job when it was offered to him, and who would go to jail yet. Hermann von Schmidt, Marion's husband, had likewise been interviewed. He had called Martin the black sheep of the family, and repudiated him, he tried to sponge off of me, but I put a stop to that good and quick. Von Schmidt had said to the reporter, he knows better than to come bumming around here. A man who won't work is no good, take that from me. This time, Martin was genuinely angry. Brissenden looked upon the affair as a good joke, but he could not console Martin, who knew that it would be no easy task to explain to Ruth. As for her father, he knew that he must be overjoyed with what had happened and that he would make the most of it to break off the engagement. How much he would make of it he was soon to realize. The afternoon mail brought a letter from ruth. Martin opened it with a premonition of disaster and read it standing at the open door when he had received it from the postman. As he read, mechanically his hand sought his pocket for the tobacco and brown paper of his old cigarette days. He was not aware that the pocket was empty, or that he had even reached for the materials with which to roll a cigarette. It was not a passionate letter. There were no touches of anger in it, but all the way through, from the first sentence to the last, she sounded the note of hurt and disappointment. She had expected better of him. She had thought he had got over his youthful wildness, that her love for him had been sufficiently worth while to enable him to live seriously and decently. And now her father and mother had taken a firm stand, and commanded that the engagement be broken. That they were justified in this she could not but admit. Their relation could never be a happy one. It had been unfortunate from the first. But one regret she voiced in the whole letter, and it was a bitter one to Martin. "'If only you had settled down to some position "'and attempted to make something of yourself,' she wrote. "'But it was not to be. "'Your past life had been too wild and irregular. "'I can understand that you were not to be blamed. "'You could only act according to your nature "'and your early training. "'So I do not blame you, Martin. "'Please remember that. "'It was simply a mistake. "'As father and mother have contended, "'we are not made for each other.' and we should both be happy because it was discovered not too late there is no use trying to see me she said toward the last it would be an unhappy meeting for both of us as well as for my mother i feel as it is that i have caused her great pain and worry i shall have to do much living to atone for it he read it through to the end carefully a second time then sat down and replied he outlined the remarks he had uttered at the socialist meeting, pointing out that they were in all ways the converse of what the newspaper had put in his mouth. Toward the end of the letter, he was God's own lover, pleading passionately for love. "'Please answer,' he said, "'and in your answer you have to tell me but one thing. Do you love me? That is all, the answer to that one question.' But no answer came that day, nor the next." Overdue lay untouched upon the table, and each day the heap of returned manuscripts under the table grew larger. For the first time Martin's glorious sleep was interrupted by insomnia, and he tossed through long restless nights. Three times he called the morse home, but was turned away by the servant who answered the bell. Brissenden lay sick in his hotel, too feeble to stir out, and, though Martin was with him often, he did not worry him with his troubles. For Martin's troubles were many. The aftermath of the cub reporter's deed was even wider than Martin had anticipated. The Portuguese grocer refused him further credit, while the green grocer, who was an American and proud of it, had called him a traitor to his country and refused further dealings with him. Carrying his patriotism to such a degree that he cancelled Martin's account and forbade him ever to attempt to pay it. The talk in the neighborhood reflected the same feeling, and indignation against Martin ran high. No one would have anything to do with a socialist traitor. Poor Maria was dubious and frightened, but she remained loyal. The children of the neighborhood recovered from the awe of the grand carriage, which once had visited Martin, and from safe distances they called him Hobo and Bum. The Silva tribe, however, stanchly defended him, fighting more than one pitched battle for his honor, and black eyes and bloody noses became quite the order of the day, and added to Maria's perplexities and troubles. Once Martin met Gertrude on the street, down in Oakland, and learned what he knew could not be otherwise, that Bernard Higginbotham was furious with him, for having dragged the family into public disgrace, and that he had forbidden him the house. "'Why don't you go away, Martin?' Gertrude had begged. "'Go away and get a job somewhere and steady down. Afterwards, when all this blows over, you can come back.' Martin shook his head, but gave no explanations. How could he explain? He was appalled at the awful intellectual chasm that yawned between him and his people. He could never cross it and explain to them his position." the Nietzschean position, in regard to socialism. There were not words enough in the English language, nor in any language, to make his attitude and conduct intelligible to them. Their highest concept of right conduct, in his case, was to get a job. That was their first word and their last. It constituted their whole lexicon of ideas. Get a job, go to work. Poor stupid slaves, he thought, while his sister talked small wonder the world belonged to the strong the slaves were obsessed by their own slavery a job was to them a golden fetish before which they fell down and worshipped he shook his head again when gertrude offered him money though he knew that within the day he would have to make a trip to the pawnbroker don't come near bernard now she admonished him after a few months when he has cooled down if you want to "'You can get the job of driving delivery wagon for him. "'Any time you want me, just send for me and I'll come. "'Don't forget.' "'She went away weeping audibly, "'and he felt a pang of sorrow shoot through him "'at sight of her heavy body and uncouth gait. "'As he watched her go, "'the Nietzschean edifice seemed to shake and totter. "'The slave class in the abstract was all very well, "'but it was not wholly satisfactory "'when it was brought home to his own family.' And yet, if there was ever a slave trampled by the strong, that slave was his sister Gertrude. He grinned savagely at the paradox. A fine Nietzsche man he was, to allow his intellectual concepts to be shaken by the first sentiment or emotion that strayed along. Ay, to be shaken by the slave morality itself, for that was what his pity for his sister really was. The true noble men were above pity and compassion." Pity and compassion had been generated in the subterranean barracoons of the slaves and were no more than the agony and sweat of the crowded miserables and weaklings. End of chapter thirty nine